Daffy Duck is one of the greatest movie stars of all time. I truly believe this. My name is a Daffy. There's no other duck like me. The reaction this statement tends to provoke in people, once they realise I'm being serious, is outraged incredulity. How can I possibly make that claim in the face of Chaplin's balletic grace, Brando's brooding intensity, Streep's chameleonic range and Nicholson's devilish magnetism? How could I even entertain the idea of putting Daffy Duck in the same league as these screen icons? After all, he's just a drawing, right? Wrong. Daffy is, in fact, hundreds of thousands of drawings, the result of years and years of vibrant, intricate, highly skilled artistry from dozens of different animators. What is Humphrey Bogart got that I ain't got? Also helping Daffy become the icon that he is today, with the guiding directorial hands of Tex Avery, Bob Clampett, Friz Freeling and Chuck Jones, overseeing his evolution from an insane anarchist to a plucky narcissist to an avaricious opportunist all the while controlling the shifts in order to keep fans convinced that this was plausibly the same character. And don't be surprised if I come away with the Oscar. Another crucial anchor in this respect was the voice characterisation of Mel Blanc, who imbued Daffy with his instantly recognisable cocky lisp. Slight pause whilst I adjust my accoutrements. And the scripts of Warren Foster, Ted Pierce and Michael Maltese that experimented with his personality and potential. I demand to know... This, this little black duck has more parents than an inter-school PTA meeting, simultaneously filling in with a wider range of recognisable traits, tics and emotions than even Meryl Streep can manage. So when people ask me, how can Daffy Duck be one of the greatest movie stars of all time when he isn't even alive? I tell them to look again. Animation, at its best, is more invigoratingly alive than the unadventurous eye could ever hope to behold. Hello, I'm Andy Golding and welcome to the final in a short series of very special episodes of Spoiler in which the rest of the team have indulged my lifelong love of animation by allowing me to take the helm and interview some legends of the medium. In this episode, I'll be talking to Canadian animator and artist Sheldon Cohen, best known for his adaptation of Rock Carrier's short story The Sweater, a film that holds enormous cultural significance in Canada. Sheldon is also known for his adaptations of Dial Cow Kalsa's children's books, Snow Cat and I Want a Dog, source material perfectly suited to his sweet-natured humanist style, and his 2015 return to the animated medium, My Heart Attack, in which he wrote, narrated and animated a true story of enormous personal significance. Having written the excellent memoir, This Sweater is for You, in 2012, the details of Sheldon's career were obviously fresh in his mind, and it was a delight to be taken through his filmography in such detail and with the wit and warmth I'd come to expect from his work. Ah, this will be good. Uh, the first thing I want to talk to you about was uh, the National Film Board of Canada. They changed my perception of what animation could be. I think grow, growing up I used to watch a lot of animation, but I was into what most kids watch growing up, Tom and Jerry and uh, Bugs Bunny and that sort of thing, which I still love. But the National Film Board of Canada, they just totally blew my mind. Yeah, I, I'm, it's one of the few places in the world that um, really devotes um, the creativity to uh, director-driven projects. So I, mean, I, I feel so fortunate that I actually 
grew up in Montreal, and it happened to be sort of, you know, a 10-minute drive from my house. And, uh, you know, it's it's one of the most amazing places for animation. It's just incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I was reading in your, your wonderful memoir, This Sweater is for You, uh, when you described that first time when you turned up at the National Film Board with a, a slim portfolio and, and few expectations, really, and you, would, you were told to find a desk and think about what short film you'd like to make over the summer. Which is incredible. It, yeah, uh, actually, to really go back, I was um, in science planning to go into dentistry sort of the year before, and it just wasn't gelling with me. I just, uh, uh, I don't know how, what was even in my mind to think to go that route, but um, for whatever reason, I totally switched 180 degrees. And uh, I always loved doing artwork, but never thought of it specifically for animation. Um, and then there's a school in. Um, it's actually in the next province in Ontario called Sheridan College that uh, this is way back in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, it shows I'm really an old man, actually. <laughs> but um, they were one of the few schools in North America, um, colleges that actually taught animation. Now it's you know really widespread, but at that time it was really a rare kind of uh, art form yeah. to actually study. And basically what happened was... Uh, I, you know, went from the science background and had nothing really to show to get into the course. And in fact, they wouldn't let me into the animation course at that time and said, uh, well, you know, take a general art course first. So I did that. And then at the end of that course, I heard about the National Film Board offering summer jobs to students. And I was so excited and went to my professor and he said, well, sorry, you know, there's a lot of other students I would send before you, um, just to be honest, like, uh, you don't have enough experience. So I did go to the National Film Board in Montreal, and I had a very, very slim portfolio. And it was just one of those amazing, lucky things where the producer said, you know, I, I think there's something here. Uh, I, I want to give you a break. And uh, and here I am 40 years later <laughs> talking to you. Uh, but it, it never really was um, a kind of planned, conscious um, decision on my part to, to go this route. It just how things unfolded. Sure. Well, I mean, you, you describe it as an amazing lucky thing, but I think I think it, it was definitely more than that, looking at <laughs> your amazing body of work. Uh, well, yeah, you know, um, it's interesting. You know, I think these things are in us, uh, and one way or another, uh, if there's a real passion in us, it, one way or another it does come out. So, yeah, I, I guess, um, I don't know how long my dentistry uh, <laughs> would have lasted. But. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. Can you can you see the the passion of dental work? Can you see the passion of the dentist in someone's mouth? I don't know, um, but you certainly can. In uh, I, mean, I wanted to talk briefly about uh, the charming two minute film that you, you started out with, Boss or Bop, which is is just yeah. lovely. I love the, these uh, these early works by animators where you can really you can just see that energy and that potential in there. I mean, do you do you look back on Boss or Bop with a lot of affection, or do you think of it more as a, a learning exercise? No, you know what, because I, I hadn't seen it in quite a while, um, sort of at one point they did a DVD retrospective, so I, I really had not looked at that film for many years, and I I came to it almost as, you know, someone who wasn't the filmmaker, and it, it I, I just really um, loved looking at it because it was really very, very childlike, um, and I remember it did bring me back to, you know, when I did first start, um, you know, there was something very primitive about kind of the magic of animation was so pure at that time. Just I could not believe to, to see something move, you know, that yeah. that was on paper. Um, 
so actually, uh, I, I actually do really respond to that film even now in terms of that magic. And, you know, I, I kind of never want to lose that. Yeah. I, I think there's a danger as we go on and on and get more sophisticated and professional, that original spark could, could kind of... Uh, fade away so well I, I watched it today and i just every time i watch that film i end up with a big smile on my face well actually i call it sort of um the forerunner to um music videos yes yeah. <laughs> uh, my intention at that time was to find a soundtrack and just create characters moving to music that was exciting for me to actually use music and all my films since um the music um component is is always key for me in terms of emotional impact so you know that that very first film i ever did was just based on music and yeah. kind of um stayed with me favorite chapters in your memoir is the the chapter that's called did i mention that animation is insane uh, <laughs> which is about just the the painstaking work that goes into an animated film and this this is one of the, one of the things that i it always really gets me because one of the, the reasons that i wanted to do this show was to to try and convince people of animation's value as a medium and yet people seem to to trivialize it or think it's just for children or almost think of it as a a kind of throwaway art form and yet like so many I mean you talk about a scene in the sweater that took you 10 seconds to conceive of and 10 weeks to animate there is some insanity to to the art form in terms of frame by frame by frame uh, and what's even worse I mean uh, you could spend definitely weeks on on creating something and then see that it doesn't work you know um, which is very different than other art forms which are much more immediate yeah. although I, I must say now with computers and um, sort of just technology now you do get instant feedback um, you know in a much different way um, than when I first started which was kind of flipping papers and um, you know definitely um, I, I would spend weeks and weeks on on each scene so within that insanity, there has to be a real kind of clear, logical approach, which is a bit of a paradox <laughs> yeah, of, sure. of kind of being really sane inside that insanity. Um, have, have you ever encountered, uh, specifically in re reaction to your own work, but also to animation in general, have you ever encountered that kind of uh, response that trivializes it and, and looks down on it as if it's if it's just a, a children's medium or yeah i actually um almost uh, feel animators uh the way i put it we're kind of seated at the kids table <laughs> and kind of the, the adults are somewhere else there is a, a general sense you know not to take it seriously i i i guess the nature of cartoons uh if it's um that kind of animation is meant to be humorous and kind of uh, whimsical so you know anything profound doesn't usually fit in with that and you know it's not like a true artiste whatever but you know that's why the uh, you know the national film board um really devotes itself to to excellence and, and kind of um uh, you know i yeah. i i kind of hesitate here because i don't want to put down myself for <laughs> asking yeah. me that people do but but there's a difference between kind of um kind of a slapstick cartoon little clip and some kind of storytelling 
that goes deeper with um, different kind of artwork. So it's a funny business. I, I think you can't really say animation is one thing. Um, I think it's broken down into many different kind of genre that um, are unto themselves. You know, Absolutely, so that yeah. mainly, you know, for me, it's actually commercial versus um, what, what I refer to as director driven. Uh, and those are right away those are very two different approaches but even within them it breaks down differently so you know my, my passion is for literal kind of um, straight ahead uh, I guess storytelling yeah. with a beginning middle end but there's so much beautiful amazing animation that's just kind of lyrical and sort of doesn't follow that traditional storytelling you know Norma McLaren actually who who is kind of um, the legend from the National Film Board. Yeah. Uh, some, so many of his films are just pure expression, you know, which is another aspect of animation. So I think when animation works, um, what's common would be that magic, yeah, that magic absolutely. of things moving. And, you know, animate, the, the um, root word is to give spirit to, you know, to bring something to life. So, I mean, that that's quite amazing in itself just that you're bringing something to life for anyone to put down the art form or dismiss it um you know there's nothing more profound than bringing something to life absolutely yeah so, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah well that's that's that perfectly sums it up for me that's a, <laughs> a wonderful quote yeah um one thing that I was, I was very interested in was the um and i realize i'm, I'm jumping over a very significant film in your uh, filmography here but believe me we are going back for it uh, but uh, the uh, the response to your film pies which mm. you described in, in your memoir uh, which ostensibly is is a film about a german house frau and a, a polish neighbor fighting over mm. and eventually with cow pants but you know in reality it's it's about intolerance and it has this strong message about bringing people together which is seems even more crucial now could you tell tell me explain to me a little about the response that that film received well, yeah you're definitely right about um, the message and and um how that actually got overlooked uh, in a way the context uh, of of that film just in terms of of um, my work kind of chronologically i had finished the sweater which uh, could not have uh, you know been better received yeah. it just went from festivals festival in the circuit and was really incredibly received so I was kind of given uh, an open-ended um, opportunity for my next film and I worked actually with um, Caroline Leaf uh, who actually lives in London now uh, one of my most favorite animators yeah. uh, she was at the film board at the, at the time and wanted to try her hand at producing and she kind of gave me a bunch of stories to look look at and one of them was pies um and i i just totally responded to the story i just kind of saw it in my head sort of how i would do it so all, all that to say is as successful as um the feedback for the sweater was when pies came out it just kind of uh people didn't know what to do with it because <laughs> of you know characters throwing um cow well uh, cow pies you know is cow dung and basically throwing it at each other um which uh was also the, the undercurrent of um you know prejudice and uh just what you said that's so relevant today about how we're intolerant uh, of our neighbors basically yeah. 
or people who we don't even want to consider that they even should be neighbors. So the two characters in, in the story, um, you, you know, it's post-war uh, immigration to Canada from Germany and Poland, two countries that were at war, and so it's 19, early 1950s in, in um, the prairies in Canada, and one is a city dweller. This, it takes place on the outskirts, so it's kind of half city, half farm. And the two neighbors just really end up uh, just clashing, basically. Oh, this is miser. It's a nice day today, no? I want to speak about the cow. You must keep her tied up, yeah? It is impossible to walk here. Look! Kuhfladen! Kuhfladen! It is not a farm here. So you think it's a city here, yes? <laughs> Why you don't stay on the sidewalk? You big shot city lady. <laughs> oh, you... <laughs> Who is dirty now? You! Pick! Oh, you! What? <laughs> uh, basically, you know, what happened was that uh, as soon as the distribution took effect, letters would come in and say, I don't want to show this film to my children, and um, uh, how could you even sort of, um, you know, basically sort of the ethnicity of it um, shouldn't even be brought to screen that way, where two neighbors would actually fight that way. Um, it even, believe it or not, I think letters went to the Prime Minister of Canada <laughs> saying that wow. how, could a, how could a government agency like the National Film Board put out a film like this? <laughs> so there was, there was really very strong um, visceral reaction to the film. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, when I would go around to schools and show the film, that was the film that kids responded to most <laughs> in, in, course, really, yeah. in a really good way, like because it was a, a, a springboard for discussion about prejudice. And um, I, th I think that film just never had a chance, sort of in, um, I don't know, the conservative mental things. But, uh, you know, for me as a filmmaker, what it taught me was um, I put as much goodwill and passion into that film is as the sweater and you can never predict how the audience is going to not even the audience but the marketing how how yeah. that's going to end up films have a life of their own so it kind of was the lesson for me just to give my best every time and the rest you you just can't predict it's a very good pie you said english <laughs> i never think english cooks so good <laughs> Well, you, you said that, that films have a life of their own, which is a, a perfect way, and I think, to to talk about the sweater in, in more detail. I mean, this this is a film that, that really did take on a life of, a, of its own. I remember seeing it as, as quite a young boy. I'd, I'd encountered other National Film Board of Canada films at that time, but it was, it was many things like The Cat Came Back and The Big Snit, which absolutely, I loved them. But they challenged the way I thought about character design and humour and everything. But then I saw the sweater and it, it really hit me at a gut level. And I didn't quite understand why that, that was when I was a kid. I mean, we, we don't really have a, a big hockey culture over here or anything. And I didn't, I didn't understand uh, the political subtext of, of the story or anything. But uh, mm. it really tapped, in, tapped into this sense, for one thing, like this, the sense of crushing disappointment when, when the young boy in it received the wrong... Hockey sweater. It's just something that you, 
you don't really see that kind of emotion captured so perfectly that often and that really kind of struck a chord with me I mean this, it's an amazing story uh, anyway up by uh, Rosh Carrier who, who narrates it brilliantly uh, could you just uh, explain a little about how you, you came across the story and how you knew that it was it was right for you well just quickly I will tell you um, I showed it in Abu Dhabi where they, oh. you know just stand everywhere yeah. uh, and kids totally responded in the same way you oh, did fantastic. really knowing <laughs> hockey uh, because it, it, there's something so universal about Rock Harry's story um, and specifically to Canadians uh, because there is the political undercurrent of English versus French you know so just to give um, a very quick recap it's they live in a little village, and his mother sends away for um, a Montreal Canadian hockey sweater, everyone idolizing Maurice the Rocket Richard, who is the hero of uh, you know, French Canada and Quebec. And they have to send it away to the big city where English is dominant, and they get back a Toronto Maple Leaf sweater, uh, the sweater of the enemy. I was crying. I can't wear that. Why? The sweater is a perfect fit. Maurice Richard would never wear it. You're not, Maurice Richard. Besides, it's not what you put on your back that matters. It's what you put inside your head. He ends up on the ice with um, the blue sweater and all the other kids have the Montreal Canadian red, <laughs> blue and white sweater. So... You know, that, that's kind of the, uh, the parable of things. But, you know, I talk about magic a lot, you know, whenever I'm talking about animation. But there's a certain magic specifically to that story, that Rock Carrier. Just, he, he's the narrator. You know, it's a true story. It's, it's him telling it with a kind of broken English, um, French-Canadian uh, accent. And there's something just so... Um, Aside from being charming, just, um, I, I don't know, uh, you know, again, I come back to the word universal, where it taps into some childhood mentality uh, of just living in the world where you're, you're trying to make your way through. And, <laughs> um, you know, and, and when it's done in a context of humor, like, you know, it it's becomes kind of irresistible. I think yeah. that's why the sweater just works on so many levels. It's, it's just, it's endearing. Uh, it's kind of profound. It's, um, you know, it's a very, very kind of special project. And it did come to me out of the blue. Like, it's nothing that I uh, actually sort of uh, researched and said, oh, this is something I wanted to do. I, I was a student, who, kind of basically still learning about animation. You know, I started in the early 1970s, and this was working its way through a number of years of um, uh, smaller projects. And a producer came running into the National Film Board saying, I heard this amazing story on the radio. Um, it was around Christmas time, and, uh, you know, it's about a kid's hockey sweater. And, uh, and apparently I found out it went from one animator to another who, for whatever reason, wasn't able to do it. And it just kind of uh, ended up, you know, I kind of like said, oh, you know, maybe uh, I, I could look at it. And uh, sort of, um, you know, just uh, to be honest, like I'm a terrible hockey player, <laughs> um, you know, and uh, it, it's a very religiously based um, Catholic dominated story because it's a little French Canadian village where the church is just 
central to everything in in the village life and I come from a big city and I'm Jewish and so everything on paper should have been that I'm not the one to do this story but you know again creativity doesn't work that way and um, to Rock Harry's credit when he um, sort of saw my primitive drawings and you know just we met for about you know a half hour and after that he said you're the one I want you to, to do the story uh, and it changed my life forever. I mean, to this day, you know, I, I say my middle name is Sheldon the Sweater Cone because <laughs> basically it's just really, um, it, it's just such a, in Canadian life anyway, it, it just took on a, a grandeur that's uh, like no other kind of uh, story in a way. It's, it's unbelievable um, the, the uh, how culturally significant it is in Canada, isn't it? I mean, you... Uh, really, yeah. You watch that, I mean, I've, I've described that film before as, as right on the money, but in Canada, it's, it's literally on the money, isn't it? There's a there's a <laughs> quote from from the, uh, sadly, a quote that doesn't feature in the film itself, isn't it? But uh, but that's how, how entrenched in, in Canadian culture that story is. You know, I... I... I actually was in Vancouver, which is the other side of the country, you know, like, I don't know, 3,000 miles away or whatever, and uh, everyone that I met there knew that story. It, it's, <laughs> it's just incredible how it um, got into sort of the, um, uh, the psyche of Canadians. Wearing my Toronto Maple sweater, I went to the church and prayed to God. Ask God to send me right away a hundred million moths that would eat up my Toronto Maple Leafs sweater. You talk about magic and it, it really is. I mean, I'm almost welling up just thinking about it now. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, that's certainly true of uh, your next film and, uh, and the film after that as well. You, you made two... Uh, Two short films based on the work of uh, Dial Cower Kelso, who's a, a children's book author who yeah, sadly no yeah. longer with us. And no, and um, I met her at my publisher, Tundra Books, in, in Canada. There was, you know, someone was with the publisher, and I was in the waiting, well, kind of like a waiting room, and she was an Indian Sikh, sort of a white turban, white um, clothing, and yet. Um, when I started talking to her, she had a New York accent and just had the most amazing humor. We, we ended up being friends, uh, you know, uh, after that in Montreal, where she had sort of the most amazing short stories. And one of them was called Snowcat, which um, she said she never actually gave to a publisher because she wasn't quite sure how to, what to do with it. And I said, can I look at it? And as soon as I read the story, I just fell in love with it. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, she also did. I want. She wrote. I want a dog. Yes. <laughs> which was my uh, film after Snowcat. So kind of dogs and cats were uh, the theme for me for many years. <laughs> but but Snowcat um, was a whole other experience for me because I decided it, it started off as a ten-minute uh, Canada Council grant, which is just sort of um, an agency through the government where you could. Uh, filmmakers could get money to make projects and again it was a a life learning lesson for me because um, I just kept making it more and more ambitious in terms of how I wanted to do the film and it eventually became a TV half hour production where I bought the rights and went into co-production with the National Film Board 
um, but that almost killed me. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> Uh, it's it's just so different um, from the creative aspect, you know, all the administrative part of filmmaking, and you know now I I kind of see, you know, why we need producers and <laughs> oh god, it, you know, it, it's just uh, whatever the left brain and right brain, um, you need both to actually get a film out there. Yeah. But um, it's rare when there's one person who who has both sides of that brain working. Um, <laughs> So, like I said, it, it, it was really a, a struggle to actually get it into a half-hour film. But um, anyway, it, it, it's out there, and, uh, and it's it was wonderful. quite an experience. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 got, it's got a very different, different look to it. Uh, it was created partially on a, a toy called The Finger Painter, is that right? Yeah, um, I had done the storyboard, but wasn't quite sure how to uh, actually render it you know, especially as it became more expansive as a project. And I started working with uh, an amazing Montreal animator, Jean-Michel Labrosse, yeah. who actually came up with this idea of, of finger painting the animation straight ahead directly under the camera. It's interesting because now um, with computers, it could be done so much easier. But at that time... Um, you would have to set up a camera stand with a 35 millimeter film and go frame by frame using real film stock. And he took a toy, it's a kind of a toy for compulsive parents where they had this kind of graphite medium in between two, two layers of acetate and their children would kind of finger paint and leave a kind of squish it and then it would leave, it was underlit so you could kind of see what came up underneath. Um, but he had kind of the genius to convert that into a, an actual animated uh, format. You know, part of the problem was it, it was difficult to focus it. it. It had a soft image, a soft focus, and in order to help that, each frame was hand-painted after on 35-millimeter film with watercolor. So it was, a, you know, talk about insanity. This, this really was <laughs> totally insane. And yeah, it looks but, so you know, you know, it's it's part of the the um, again um, my approach to to creativity in general is um, not to fall into any set patterns and yeah. just sort of follow where things lead. And you know, uh, it, it, it I, I hate to say this, but but it's true. I mean, I almost wish I had just stayed to the ten minute film, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where my original Canada Council grant. Uh, I, I think it just would have. I don't know, I, I would have been more in control of things and um, probably would have hit the mark a bit more than I did. So it's a, it's a lesson learned, I suppose, isn't it? And you got yeah. a wonderful film out of it as well. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, honestly, and, and really there's, you, you can't have regrets that way because uh, even t today, you know, when I start from square one with a new project, I never know when to stop, actually. <laughs> that's, that's kind of an issue with me. <laughs> And then you, you followed up Snowcat with uh, with I Want a Dog, which is is lovely. I mean, that's such a a colourful, uplifting film. Me and my uh, my wife watched it the other night, and we went to to bed singing Bow Wow. I yeah, think yeah. That doo wop soundtrack um, is just incredible. I mean, Nico Case's performance and the, and the songs themselves. To hear her singing "Walking My Roller Skate" is just an absolute joy. Well, if you find me strutting down the block. With a very special bounce in my walk You see I'm happy, I'm feeling great 
when you when you were putting the the film together, how important did you feel that music was going to be? And yeah, the the music actually uh, again, uh, um, as all the films that I mentioned are, are is really key, but especially that film. Um, and uh, Xander Ari was the composer. Uh, an adapter of of sort of uh, this doo-wop theme that Nico Case, you know, ended up singing. Uh, she she's just incredible. She's, um, you know, her original background is kind of punk folk. You know, kind of the farthest thing from just singing a, a cute little kid song. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but what she brings to it, um, the, her voice is so unique, and so much of that film is is, is the soundtrack and the doo-wop feeling. But, you know, again, sort of, um, I talked about the sweater being totally successful, pies being more difficult. Well, the same thing, you know, there, there's kind of cycles to, to this 40-year career. So that Snowcat was incredibly painful in a way to get it made. And then I Want a Dog came along, and it was just pure joy from beginning <laughs> to end. And um, again, you know, I, I, I always give my best, but there's something where all the pieces came together so beautifully and I want a dog. You can feel that and, uh, when you're watching it as well. You can feel that joy in the film. Yeah, you know, and, and again, um, that is a film that kids respond to, yeah. uh, e- even adults, you, you know, uh, there's something. Uh, that's uh, Dial Coward Calsa again. Um, yeah. The images, even though, um, again, I adapted sort of her, her story, but the artwork is based on a lot of her own images. So I, I guess looking back, certain films will have a highlight, and definitely I Want a Dog has that highlight for me. Uh, have, you, have you seen a roller skate on a leash? Has anybody seen a roller skate on a leash? I'd like to, to talk now about your, your most recent film, My Heart Attack, which is, yeah. is, is quite a different film, but I think it's, it's an absolute masterpiece. Uh, it, it completely... Uh, took me off guard when I saw it. I thought it was wonderful. It's, it's oh, a, a bit of a move away from uh, previous films in a way because you you made a name for yourself adapting other people's work, but this was this was inspired by your own story. Was it was it nerve-wracking to, to make a film so focused on, on your personal life? I, I wouldn't say nerve-wracking. It was definitely different uh, mm. on one level and and yet not because it was so personal and especially... I also was able to be objective about it so that I came to it as a filmmaker, kind of um, looking at the project itself. It had both elements. It was me, that, like, so close to it, but also me as a filmmaker, um, as if it wasn't me. So I, I kind of managed to find that balance that was really important. But what happened was I, I had actually, um, you mentioned the memoir, um, The Sweater is for You. I had written that thinking... I was kind of finished with animation. This is before I did the heart, atta- heart attack film and before the heart attack itself. Yeah. Um, I, I um, just felt, um, you know, I, I don't know, it sounds a little silly, but that I had said everything I wanted to say in, in, in filmmaking, at least in animation that way. And I kind of, you know, never ever thought I would make another, um, you know, kind of storytelling film in the way that I had been doing, you know, maybe I would play around with little things, but definitely it was not part of um, anything I had envisioned for myself. You know, I I had uh, turned 60, and, uh, you know, I kind of was looking at using my artwork another way, and in fact, I've always been really interested in psychology and, 
using art in terms of um, I don't know psychological processes like like as done in art therapy and I yeah. thought um, you know I would actually maybe try to get there there was a course in Montreal where they would offer a master's program in art therapy and I thought okay you know maybe this is sort of my second career type of thing and then out of nowhere which anyone who sees a film will know the whole story uh had i created a scenario for a film people would say you know don't even do this because it's so unbelievable but this actually happened (laughs) um i had a heart attack while the dog was having a heart attack uh my wife had called me to come to the dog park um because there was a dog in distress and uh, i thought maybe she meant our dog because she got off right away and I ran at a mad dash down the block to get to the park. And as I'm running, <laughs> I start having a heart attack, not really knowing, but I can't catch my breath, you know, which is, is kind of reflected in the first half of the film. It, it's it's almost like a sitcom, like where I'm trying to get people's attention because I'm having a heart attack, but they're all paying attention to the poor dog. So as crazy as all that sounds, um, you know, I eventually do end up in emergency and sort of the rest um, is kind of uh, takes a different turn because um, I, I, I had a stent, but then they discovered I would need open heart surgery. So what really um, I did not expect, uh, to just uh, in my life situation of having this uh, procedure, was the emotions I felt when I got home in yeah. the recovery. Um, and there's very, very little preparation, uh, at least, you know, in my experience, uh, and there were all these emotions I was feeling that I, I just um, didn't know how to deal with. So basically, um, again, it reflected in the film, the second half of the film just switches gears totally into a much more profound film in terms of uh, the theme of it. And I wanted to actually, the way that it ended up being a film, like, uh, again, which is um, quite incredible. Because I had written my memoir at that time, um, I was into writing, and I thought, this, this is actually true. I'd just come out of uh, surgery. You go through this intensive care before they bring you to your room. But as soon as I got to my room where I would have to stay for the next week, I asked the nurse for um, a pen, and they give you this. You have a sheet of paper for all the TV channels that you could watch. But I immediately felt there was a story in me to tell about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So I was still on morphine, my hand was shaking, but I started writing the story of my heart attack, not thinking it would be a film, but you could see this story was in me. And um, what happened was how it ended up being a film, getting back to art therapy, I had the best references. I, I had what I thought was a great interview for the master's program. Rock Carrier had written me a letter of recommendation, and um, just everything seemed like it was set. And, of course, I got my letter of rejection <laughs> saying I didn't get into the program. And it really hit me like I was really upset. And um, just as a knee-jerk reaction, I don't know where it came from, but I emailed my longtime producer at the National Film Board, Marcy Page, and just sort of um, sent off a quick email, would you do a film about my heart attack? And again, you know, as soon as I sent it, I I kind of thought, oh, my God, you know, this will never be a film. But she actually answered me the next day very (laughs) enthusiastically saying, let's talk more about this. 
and it ended up, you know, that's how for the next few years I ended up, you know, frame by frame telling the story of my heart attack. So, it, you know, I say it came out of the blue as much as my heart attack did. I, I never intended it to be a film. So you never know where life is going to bring you. No, sure. sure. And did you yeah. did you feel that with there were elements of the therapeutic for you personally in in making the film? There was definitely something healing about about the process of um, just you know going face to face with all the emotions and um, you know most people uh, you know that was a lot of the reaction I would get when I told people I was making this film. They most people said, well, why would you even want to sort of you know, think about it, like, just move on with your life. But um, it actually was very healing. And aside from that, just creatively, I was just um, so caught up in it. Um, it was a new world for me. I, I kind of came to it a bit like a kid in kindergarten because um, people now are using Cintiqs uh, at the film board uh, where everything, you know, it's a template where you just do everything straight ahead on the screen from editing to coloring storyboarding talk about coming from 1970s all the way to now i had to sort of find my way into this new world and uh i ended up being put in the same room as this um new kind of i call him a uh, kind of whiz kid that um was just starting out at the film board david barlow Carolina, and he just became the art director and you know a lot of the amazing visuals in, in the film really um i give credit to him and, and the whole experience uh, of this film on so many levels creatively just were, were things, uh, just like I called it a dream team. Um, Marcy Page actually retired halfway through and uh, Yelena Popovich took over who just, that's one thing about the film board, just the, the quality of, of the producers there are just amazing. So that just um, incredible guidance from both of them. And musically, uh, Judith Gruber-Stitzer um, was the um, musician. She, she's done a many, many um, NFB films. And uh, we ended up working with Anna McGarrigal from the McGarrigal Sisters, um, adapting one of her songs, um, uh, Heartbeats Accelerating. So there were really um, the, the elements uh, that went into that film, you know, I call it my heart attack, but uh, I, you know, I really can't call it my film honestly in that sense even though it's such a personal story uh, and that's the difference about this film i mean i was now telling my own story which was really really a new experience for me you know but in the end uh you know storytelling is storytelling uh, and creating it in film is, is still the same no matter if it's my story or someone else's sure, it has yeah. to just it has to carry the audience that that's kind of my job as a filmmaker uh, so that that didn't change, but um, they had to kind of twist my arm to actually be the narrator of the film, um, <laughs> which you do really uh, well. I really uh, I was totally uncomfortable in the studio, and in fact I had to set myself up in a little corner all by myself and take take after take after take until I finally got one that I would accept. You know, so um, it was a pretty <laughs> neurotic experience overall. But. I, I totally agree with you. I mean, I know a lot of critics have, have called it your most personal film but I, I really feel there's a, a real personal sense to all of your work that derives from your obvious love of the material and it imbues them all with this real unique Sheldon Cohen feel which I think is something that everyone should have in their life. Yeah well thanks I, I mean I, I do I feel lucky that way that um, I could connect with that passion um, you know each film that I have done 
definitely there's a, a real love of the art form and you know and the magic the magic of animation is it's it really is like no other art form in that sense my deepest thanks to Sheldon Cohen for his eloquent observations and for not minding that I got the time difference wrong and called an hour early. You can find out more about Sheldon and his work at his website, bysheldoncohen.blogspot.co.uk, or in his memoir, The Sweater is for You. And finally, thanks to you, the listeners, for joining me on this journey through my obsession with animation, for keeping an open mind, and hopefully coming to see this thoroughly underrated medium in a new light. So what have we learned? Throughout the series, both myself and my guests have referred several times to the magic of animation. But how apt a description is this for a process that actually arises from hour upon painstaking hour of drawing, painting and tweaking that can involve years of work for a ten-minute film seen only by a handful of people? And yet, for all the work that goes into creating these masterpieces, you'll less often hear animators themselves talk about the business or the industry as you will hear them refer to the animation community. And this is where the magic comes in. For the majority of animators, they are in it less for the money than for the love of the art. And this love is shared amongst the ever-growing animation community, an overwhelmingly enthusiastic group, made up not just of animators, composers and voice artists, but of the avid, adoring fans of their work. A community that, despite having no discernible artistic ability in that way, I feel very much a part of. To all those people scribbling away in their bedrooms, sweating over light boxes, or creating those computerised personalities that a whole generation said could never exist, I salute you. For many, the magic of animation is in not seeing the creator behind the curtain. But for me, the real magic comes from seeing them in every line, brushstroke and pixel, and still completely investing in the characters and worlds they bring to life. They are magicians without the element of deceit. We know the rabbits, or should that be wabbits, are already in the hats. But I, for one, will never tire of seeing them pulled out, however long that process may take. been listening to Spoiler with me, Andy Golding. You can find out more about Spoiler and listen to our past shows at spoilerpodcast.co.uk or find us on Facebook, Twitter, Acast and iTunes. Also, check out my list of a thousand and one animated shorts you must see. You can find the link at spoilerpodcast.co.uk. A dog I can cuddle, he won't be Spoiler is produced by Johnny Hoare and is recorded in the studios of Siren FM in the heart of the beautiful cathedral city of Lincoln. 